0: Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Episode 17, Terror, Evil, and Loss of the Self, with Brenda Donahue, RN, LCSW. In anticipation of our upcoming five-part series, Terror and the Soul, today we're sharing the first episode of the series Terror, Evil, and Loss of the Self. In this seminar, Brenda Donahue discusses how survivors of childhood deprivation or physical and sexual abuse routinely describe themselves as freaks existing outside of normal human relations because they feel evil or bad. This is because the child victim takes the evil of the abuser into him and herself in order to preserve the primary attachment to the parents. This sense of badness or evil becomes a staple of the personality structure and many survivors spend their lives refusing to be absolved of blame. This course presents basic concepts from analytical psychology and shows how they can be used in the treatment of post-traumatic stress syndrome. It was recorded in 1994. For the complete series, you can visit our website, www.jungchicago.org store. Brenda Donahue, RN, LCSW is a Jungian analyst in private practice in the western suburbs of Chicago and author of C.G. Jung's Complex Dynamics and the Clinical Relationship, One Map for Mystery. And now here is the lecture.
1: for the course is to present clinicians with useful tools um, that will help you develop a working paradigm for uh, the treatment of patients who have experienced physical and sexual abuse or neglect. Um, I'd like to say a little bit about my experience and about kind of how I'd like the class to work and and that is um, um, I've been doing therapy a long time before I became an analyst. Um, I struggled in the program trying to integrate what I had learned as a clinician with Jungian ideas and for me that wasn't always easy. Um, I do two groups a week. Um, One um, uh, men and women and one women of um, uh, survivors of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, largely. Um, The work that I do is long term. I I, I do not do brief treatment. I am not going to survive in the managed healthcare system. I I don't do that kind of work and I'm too old, I think, to learn how to treat somebody in six sessions. So, um, you know, um, that really is the base that I operate under. People who work with me usually work with me for six or eight years. It's a long time, Um, oftentimes um, they go into group and and work individually as well as in group and they don't go into group until they have a fairly well-developed observing ego. So that's kind of a sense of a little bit of how I work. I would ask that in the class, that rather than, than, than work with theory, that we try and think about people that we've worked with and see if we can ask questions about that and, and work together on trying to understand how to work with them. So that's kind of the format. I will be talking about theory. Some of it is very boring. Um, and yet I'd like us to think about how it works, what works and what doesn't work. Um, I've got some operating assumptions uh, in the way that I work. Um, The first is that the survivor is the author and arbiter of his or her own recovery. The analyst remains neutral, and that means that we don't take sides with parts of the patient as opposed to other parts, and that we refrain from advancing a personal agenda. Um, This doesn't mean that the analyst does not respond with empathy, but rather that the analyst understands that there's a difference between siding with parts of the patient and working with the patient to develop an understanding of these parts. The analytic work with this kind of patient, and I think with all kinds of patients, really requires mutual collaboration and cannot be done without it. If the patient is unable to collaborate, then an assessment can be made with the help of the patient so that the work can move towards that goal. If the patient cannot collaborate or learn to collaborate, it is difficult for change to take place. And I think that it may become likely that the analytic work will replicate the trauma. Okay? Um, The third thing is that the relationship between the analyst and the patient is a triad. The analyst, the patient, and the victim or the perpetrator. And the victim and perpetrator construct will change in the work. Um, The goal of the work is for the analyst and the observing ego of the patient to develop ways to identify the projective mechanisms that maintain the perpetrator-victim structure in the outer world and slowly begin to pull those projections in so that the inner structure can be worked with, and that individuation can be loosened and take place. And that's really what I'm going to be talking about. Um, It's the work of the analyst to bear witness to the patient's story, not to rescue and not to reject. The therapeutic agreement should be clear. Both parties are committed to recovery, truth-telling, cooperation in the work. Boundaries are clearly defined, but can be um, negotiated. For instance, we um, have an agreement with a, with the a patient to see them once a week at such and such a time. But they begin having flashbacks, and they begin having a difficult time. So the patient calls; the time to be seen is renegotiated, and they may be seen two to three times a week when they're undergoing, you know, difficult periods. And then you work within the structure to change it again as as the need takes place. So there's kind of an overall agreement about meeting time and fee and late-cancel ideas. um, But the structure can be negotiated. Um, I think the main idea there, and for those of you who have worked with with, uh, people with post-traumatic stress disorder, it really is um, important that the patient not scare the daylights out of the analyst, and sometimes that can happen. Um, The sixth is that the analyst needs to have a strong support system, which includes um, a safe, structured, and regular forum for reviewing clinical work, where he or she is safe to have their feelings and to hypothesize about what might be going on with the patient. That's real important. Um, Seventh one is that this class is a way for us to explore what works and what may be useful for us as clinicians when working with patients like this. Any case material that I may be used or that you present, I ask that be distorted and disguised in order to protect confidentiality. So I'd like us to talk about patients but at the same time, I'm going to distort and delete and change whoever it is that I talk about so that they're not easy, not recognized. Um, the eighth assumption about this class is please ask a lot of questions. Um, I'm assuming that you're all clinicians. Um, the work that we do is uh, difficult, uh, sometimes painful. Um, and I ask that we collaborate and share um, so that it, the more you ask, the more you'll get I'm going to start out with definitions. Um, they're going to be Jungian definitions, um, but they're really the ground floor of the paradigm that I'm presenting. And I think that what's important is that with, as I work on the definition, um, th- that, I, that we can try and understand how that would manifest in the, in the clinical setting with, with this kind of patient, okay? So the first, the first definition um, that I'm going to give is the self. Um, it is a particularly helpful, wonderful concept for an analyst. Um, it is the sum total of the personality. It carries the image of wholeness. In one sense, it is our full potential for development that is asleep that gets brought into being during an entire lifetime. I think Jungians are the only psychology that that uh, believe in, in the self. Um, in a sense, it's a higher power, or it's a consciousness within the unconscious. You want to think of it that way. It is that part of the personality that sees the entire personality. It is the somebody within us that knows what the blueprint is and tries to make sure that the blueprint gets actualized. It is the architect and also the blueprint that undergrids the entire development of a person. And it is this concept that makes Jungian analysis different from any other kind of clinical work because the analyst knows that there is a part of the patient that knows how to knit the patient together again. Um, And you know, somebody said um, vicarious trauma. There's oftentimes um, when in my own way and I'm listening to someone, um, I pray because I I don't know what else to do. And I think if I didn't have a trust and sometimes a knowledge that there was something inside the patient that knew how to knit them together after what they've been through, I don't think that, that I could do the work. Okay. Now the knitting together process that goes on, Um, is the relationship between the self and the ego. And I'll define what I mean by ego in a minute. But that relationship, over a lifetime, is called individuation. Okay. Now, rather than give you um, a definition, I'm going to tell you a story. Okay? Um, Because that works better for me. Um, Once upon a time, there was an Indian man who... um, was in his um, early 50s and he'd grown up like most kids on the reservation um, as a little boy he'd been taken away uh, to the white schools and he wasn't allowed to learn his language um, he was um, abused uh, and he grew up and he be physically uh, abused in the school and he grew up and he became an alcoholic and uh, drank himself into oblivion uh, for most of his life married and um, Lost his wife and lost a relationship with his children, and finally um, somehow came to terms without a with his alcoholism and uh, stopped drinking and began having a life for himself. And by the time he was in his early 50s, he was married for the second time, and he was you know working on the reservation and he had he had a kind of a life. He never had any training in the ways of his people, um, and he began having a terrible longing inside of him. And he didn't know what that longing was about, and he but he didn't sleep well, and something was wrong, and he didn't know what was wrong, and he didn't know what to do because he didn't, and he didn't have anyone to talk to. And finally, he went to the the medicine man, an old medicine man uh, who kept the old ways, and he said, "Look, I'm having trouble sleeping, and I'm very troubled, and I shouldn't be troubled. I'm not drinking. I love my wife. I, you know, I'm working. I, I have a life. I don't know what's wrong." And um, The medicine man said, well, you've never been initiated as a man, and so you're going to have to go up and cry for a vision. And so um, the old man said, okay, I'll I'll do that. I I will go up and cry for a vision. And he did the purging, and he did the sweat lodge, and he went up into the mountain for three days with no food and no water, and he had a vision. A a hummingbird appeared to him and and said to him um, that he was to transmit the ways of his people to the world. And the man came down from the mountain, and he felt very empowered, and very awed, and very inflated. And and he went to the medicine man and said, I've had this wonderful vision, and and, and I'm, I'm going to do this. And and then they both went and how. And so he and he didn't know how. And he had had a powerful experience, so his longing increased, and he didn't know how to express his vision. And so a year came around, and he went up and cried for a vision again. And he cried for a vision for five years. Um, He was absolutely in despair. He felt pressed and and longing for something. He was suffering, and he didn't know why. He had this terrible vision, and by now it was a terrible vision because he didn't know how to do it. He felt helpless. And um, finally, he was in a store one day buying three penny nails, and... um, there was a man ahead of him, and on the reservation in the stores, they have everything. They have clothes and food and anything you would want to buy, even old pawn and And um he saw the man ahead of him, and the man ahead of him was buying oil paints, and he looked at the paints and he said oh that's that's it! Never seen them before, never been exposed to any kind of painting you know, on a learning level, and he bought the paints. On on consignment, um, he didn't pay any money for them, and he took the paints and the easel and the palette knife and the palette home and um, set it up in his bedroom, and nothing happened. And over a period of time, he brought the the easel and the paints out, and he began painting what he saw. And a couple years later, he brought some of his paintings in to pay for bills, uh, and coincidentally, people from New York were going past and saw his paintings and took them with him to New York, and today his paintings are hanging in museums. Now that's a story of individuation, and, and what has happened for, for the man, as what happens for all of us, is that he had a very constricted idea of what his life was supposed to be like. And the self had a much bigger idea. And all of the time that it took him to go up in the mountains and cry for a vision and learn how to paint, His consciousness was changing and expanding into something that looked more in keeping with his own process and his own talents. And that really is what the process of individuation is. It's a moving from a constricted, narrow attitude into something more deeper and more in keeping with who we are. And we can't make the leap all at once. That man could not have had his paintings hanging in museums um, after he went up and cried for his vision process that he went through was as important for him as the paintings, and that's individuation. Now ask me questions. No questions. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, you understand. So that when you think about people with post-traumatic stress disorder, okay, the first thing that we need to remember is that their attitude um, their consciousness is going to be constricted it's going to be bound by certain constraints Um, their memory may be bound their ability to have affect may be bound their ability to be assertive and to remain cohesive in some ways may be bound and their relationship with the self with the architect of their life is going to be bound and constricted in some way okay any questions all right, so we'll move on to the next definition. Um, the next definition is another wonderful term. Um, it's called archetype. I don't know of any other discipline that has archetype. Um, it is an invisible structuring pattern of psychophysiologic performance that is linked to instinct. Archetypes are irrepresentable and they are evident only through their manifestations. They link body and image. They are represented in behavior. So we see them in the universal life experiences, birth, death, marriage, Remember what was it, Doctor Kildare? Years ago in the, in the in the in the 60s, what was it? Birth, death, infinity. You know, <laughs> you know. We're, um, so we those are archetypal experiences: marriage, separation, motherhood, fatherhood. Um, archetypes can also be experienced in dreams as images, and sometimes they act to create symbols whose function is to to create or move consciousness. So the hummingbird in the old man's man's, um, vision, experience, in a sense, was an archetype. When we see an animal in a dream as a Jungian, we we think of of, of an instinct. And the hummingbird acted almost as a transformer. It kept confronting the man and calling him to something more. And he literally didn't know uh, what that was. Um, Archetypes can be related to consciously or not. For example, motherhood. Um, I have five children. Karen is, is the youngest of, of three daughters, and I have two sons. Um, I think the hardest thing that I've ever done is, is to be a mother. Um, and one moves from you know, a state of, of, of excited anticipation to um, the birth process, which is painful, to the parenting process, to the letting go process when they when they grow up and they get their car or they go out uh, and they're you know and they're gone and it's a um, one can can um, relate to that process consciously or not. So in our culture, you see um, all kinds of parenting classes, all kinds of ways to learn how to become conscious of doing something that looks like it's real easy, but we don't have doctorates in parenting. <laughs> I wish we did. Um, so. We can relate to it consciously or not. Um, if any of you have ever watched um, infant observational studies, um, you can see mothers handling babies over and over again. They've done a lot of this in England since, since World War II. Um, and sometimes you'll see a mother that's absolutely in sync with the baby, absolutely, they, they dance together, and it's beautiful to watch. And sometimes you'll see a mother that looks like she's doing all the right things. And and it looks right, but they're, but they're not in sync. Um, there, there's a dissonance. Some of that is archetypal. There's a readiness in the mother and a readiness in the baby to respond to one another and there's kind of a lock and key mechanism and so they're responding. In the, in the one that doesn't work, There's a a wrongness in the readiness of the baby and or a wrongness in the readiness of the mother and somehow they're not needing, they're they're missing one another. Um, Archetypes in the guise of symbols that are fascinating and compelling arise in dreams when an individual is preparing to give up a bit of unconsciousness or conversely when the unconscious is preparing to yield up one of its treasures. Um, One of the people that I'm working with right now um, is having powerful father dreams. Um, And before, when her father spoke, and this is her history, uh, she was incested by her father um, for a long period of time, and he was the only support that she had. The mother was was very non-available. She was um, for many reasons. And um, this woman literally worshipped her father, and the father taught the woman to worship him. Um, that was part of the that was part of the ancestral relationship, and her dreams over a period of, of the last six or eight months have changed to where she has grown from a little tiny figure con- confronting this great big father to where she's a grown up woman um, talking to him and saying what you did to me is wrong. Now this is happening in the dream process, but the dream process is anticipating her daily life process. Um, Her daily life process is part work. Um, So we have the part of her that is confronting the father in the dream. But we also have the part of her little girl who adores and worships her father, and the part of her little girl who is enraged with her father. And we have our relationship with her observing ego and myself watching the little girl who adores her father and the little girl who's enraged with her father and listening to the dream and knowing that because these parts are still at war with each other it's not time yet for her to speak her peace to him. Does that, does that make sense to you? So the dream is is about a relationship with partly with an archetypal father who has shrunk to human terms, terms that she can relate to but she's still split.
0: So we don't take the dream, in her case,
1: to mean that she's had this experience of confronting her father, so now it's time for her to go out and confront him. And I'll I'll say much, much more about this. What I'm wanting to point out here is a relationship with an archetype that shows up in a dream and then changes. As she becomes more conscious, this big, huge father begins to change and become able to be related to, and that's the inner structure. Okay? Any questions about that? I'm, I'm moving too fast, but we'll come back. Any questions about archetypes?
2: I, I have a question about this. Would dissociation fit here in that if you were just looking at the little girl and ignoring the, or she was doing that? No. Okay. Um,
1: Uh, Let me say a little bit about that. Um, Let me read this back. Okay, now, okay, here's me. Um, Let's talk about a timeline in analytic work. Um, And along this timeline, we'll talk about the patient being here and her dream her inner structure, let's say her relationship to the father archetype, the father being very big and she being very small in the dream, okay? So here's here's the dream. This structure of the the little girl who worships her father and the little girl who is angry with her father doesn't exist, okay? So here's the dream. In the outer world, in the everyday world, this patient is beginning after telling her story. She has memory, but she has no emotion. She has she has memory. She can somewhat be a, a little assertive in her in her everyday life, a little bit. She has no affectivity, flat affect. And when she has affect, she dissociates. She cannot she doesn't have anything inside of her to, to, to be able to. She flies apart. So a little bit down the road. Okay? She begins to discover, because she feels contained in, in the analytic work, she begins to discover that she's got parts. She has, and I'll, I'll just name the two I named, she's got the little girl who really worshipped and adored her father and thought that he was the greatest thing ever. And she's got the part that is beginning to say, he hurt me. If he really loved me, he wouldn't have hurt me. And the part of her that's beginning to say that is an observing ego, and she can begin to say, "I'm having feelings because I feel like I'm flying apart." Um, part of that is the part of me that doesn't want to ever admit that my father did anything to hurt me because I worship and adore him, and part of that is because there's a part of me that is absolutely enraged at what he did. Okay, Does that answer your question? Yes. Okay, so so the dissociation would be linked for her with this overwhelming experience of this great big father and this little bitty her. Okay. We've talked about two concepts, the self, an archetype, and the next concept um, is ego. Um, the ego is an archetype. That is a bio, psycho, social center for consciousness. The ego is an archetype in that everyone has one. Later on, I'll be talking about complexes. The ego is also a complex because it gets filled out with lived experience. It collects, the ego collects experiences around itself. And we're going to talk at some length about that. The ego consciousness is the capacity to be accurately aware of what is going on in the outer world. It holds the capacity for self-reflection or to be aware of internal experience. Ego consciousness fluctuates. We wake, we sleep, we dream. The structure of the ego is dynamic and static. It is static. Any of you read Stern's Interpersonal in World
3: of the Infinite? Um. Talks about the ego giving four capacities memory,
1: affectivity, cohesiveness, and assertiveness. That's the static structure of the ego. Um, the, The structure of the ego is dynamic because its development rises out of the self. But it is dependent upon relationships in the outer environment for stable growth. So you've got static and dynamic. And for the ego, the self and the significant other in the beginning of development are the same. Now that's a very important concept. Mm-hmm. If you apply it to victims of post-traumatic stress disorder, because you can see that the internal and the external in the dynamic structure aspect of the ego are linked. And so, for the victim of post-traumatic stress disorder, they would they would they would experience um, the victimization as no different from the experience of the self on one level. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So in, in a very basic, broad sense, that's what's walking into the office, okay, in, in terms of being wounded. So in, in a sense, it's very nice to have priests in the class because this person needs that kind of, of mediation sometimes between the people and the self
3: could I suggest something else? Um, that client um, who had been kidnapped as a child, and she was kidnapped uh, by someone who was um, a very, very dangerous person. And, um, she had no memory of her experience. She was gone for many hours. And the impact of it was that she became a kleptomaniac. Mm-hmm. Now, her child became psychotic. And mm-hmm. so, My feeling was that the child was responding to the unconscious element in the parent that she's interacting with, Um, A part of the parent that the parent was not talked at all. Okay. So when you say that they're coming in with their interaction with the other person, I'm saying it's not just the other person, as the person is known, the child has access to a
1: part of the parent and the parent doesn't have the son. Yes, that, that's right. And um, w- w- when I begin talking about the process of interjection, we'll begin talking about how we, how we or the victim takes in generalized experiences um, of the parenting person, significant people who impact on the child, and that includes teachers and the culture. So there can be. Um, a tremendous amount taken in or interjected that interferes um, with the relationship with the self. In the case of the child who was kidnapped, she was stolen. And what I would would suggest to you is that if she began having memory or perhaps she began to be assertive or perhaps she experienced affect, that she lost a sense of cohesiveness and became anxious. And that instead of identifying with the victim... She identified with the perpetrator and stole to relieve her anxiety. Does that, does that make sense? So that, that um, um, the ego is a complicated, dynamic and, ener- and energetic, uh, energetic process. Um,
2: could, could you slow up a bit? Could sure. you just put that into your paradigm really good? Yes. Could you just go back? You want me to go back over? Yeah. Okay,
1: uh, you talked about Your name? Uh, Diane. You talked about having a patient who was kidnapped as a child by somebody who was very dangerous for hours, and she had no memory. Okay? Um, It may be that if memory came back, or if she was forced, or she needed, in order to adapt, she needed to be assertive. I would say maybe memory, because she didn't have memory. Or perhaps feelings that impinged upon this experience became activated, her sense of cohesiveness ruptured, creating anxiety, mm-hmm. and that rather than, than act, feel the, the feelings that she felt as a victim, she identified with the perpetrator and stole. She was a kleptomaniac. Did that, okay, thank you for making me go over that. Does it, any, any other questions about how, how I got there? Um, we, can, we can do either. Okay. Now, uh, you know, could you talk a little bit more about how you mean cohesiveness? You don't necessarily mean we, the opposite of dissociability. No, I don't. Um, we have a sense of history, a sense of an ongoingness, a sense of an I, an I that goes on. Someone um, who, who is lacking in a sense of cohesiveness will have that disrupted. Um, when it's disrupted to a tremendous degree um, you have a multiple personality disorder. I don't work with multiples and I, I don't feel qualified to talk about them. But that's when the sense of cohesiveness is ruptured, so that, that the ego um, forms split off parts. But cohesiveness is just our sense of hanging together and having a history and a sense of ourselves. Okay. And when we become anxious, any of us, when we're, when we're stressed, that sense of cohesiveness loosens. And later on, as I begin talking about developmental stages and instincts, um, we naturally go through um, the stages of development over and over again in a lifetime, and our sense of cohesiveness loosens during that time. I mean, we're not this kind of solid, rigid structure uh, that, 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 that you would think we, yes. We are our, our sense of cohesiveness kind of expands and contracts over a lifetime but when it's, when it's abnormal there there will be a sense that the person doesn't have a sense of continuity you'll hear a patient come in and say to you i don't have any memories before i was 10 and you go oh okay i don't remember what happened from such and such a year to such and such a year i don't remember that marriage okay you'll you'll it's a lack of memory but it's also you'll you'll get a sense of a big interruption in in the life where their sense of continuity was somehow interrupted. Question? Yeah, my question
3: was, um, earlier you indicated that you do parts work. Yes. And I was
1: wondering, is there a certain model that
3: you use? Um, well, um, God, you know, that, that's... I, I, I'm familiar hmm. with it. No,
1: I I would say that my training was much looser than that. It started about 24 years ago when group therapy uh, in the the early 7 in 1971, when group therapy was very important and TA was just beginning to have its heyday and reparenting. And so the work that was done then um, is really not parts work. It's a takeoff on Gestalt. Where, where it began as people becoming ego states, parent, adult, and child, and then it began to be become much more sophisticated um, in terms of releasing affect or, or, or making conscious um, things that are un- that were unconscious. Mm-hmm. Okay, so. Okay. Well, I was
3: wondering, how do you relate this notion of the ego to the parts
1: of the The easiest way, the easiest way to talk about that is, I don't. Um, I'm probably making a theoretical boo boo. What I do with patients is to begin working with developing enough of an observing ego so that they can tolerate um, or hold um, memories, feelings, and maybe make some behavioral changes where they where they can tolerate or hold, beginning to step back and and observe what's going on inside of them so for instance the person that I talked about who came who, who began seeing me um, was one year out of uh, cocaine and alcohol detox and began began um, having trouble managing the day-to-day life and the day-to-day relationships and so came and so came to work with me with full memory of the fact that, that that they had been incested from the time they were three until the time they were, they were 15, but could not have any affect dissociated when, when they had affect and couldn't be assertive. And so began the work, and basically it was a telling of the story over and over again. Um, as that happened and the person began to be able to link memory with body experiences, they began to develop enough of an ability to observe their internal experience, to say, to not to not be in complex, and, and, and I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself when I talk about complex and being in complex, but to develop enough of an observing ego to be able to say, when I feel this particular sensation in my chest or this particular sensation in my legs, I know I'm reacting out of a pattern, that was that was there when I was incested, and when the person can 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 have enough of an observing ego to be able to talk about their experience and enough um, to hold it, then we can begin doing parts work, and the parts work. Is, is very important because then what we get to is the part of them that feels victimized, the part of them that, that is angry and hates me for, 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 for listening to, to their, you know, the, the stories about the perpetrator. Um, so it's a way to work transference, counter-transference issues. Um, but it cannot be done until there's enough of an observing ego for the patient to step back into after they step into the part. Does that?
3: Yeah, I'm just wondering, do you, Do you see these different functions in someone that's been traumatized? Do you see them being
1: sort of held by different parts? Um, Let me let me go on because these are not necessarily the parts. These, the memory, the assertiveness, affectivity, and cohesiveness are are normal parts of the ego that get filled out with life experience. Okay. Um, When I think about parts. Um, I would think about the part of them that's the perpetrator, and the part of them that has been victimized, and the part of them...
3: Oh, Karina,
1: thank you. The part of them, for instance, this woman had a mother who um, was born premature and literally... Was non-available to her. The mother was neurologically damaged. I'm, I'm almost positive, and literally would get so anxious. She sounded an obsessive-compulsive personality disorder, and literally was not available to, the, to this woman. Um, and so she so she worshipped her father. Um, as she developed her observant ego, she had memory. She was not able to have affectivity. As her affect came back. She was aware of a part of her that was very like her mother, that when she would have that, she would act like her mother and get very anxious and be very busy and very driven. It was very helpful for her to be able to that part of herself and talk about her anxiety and how stupid she was and how, um, how she didn't like having a daughter and how unavailable she was. Um, it was helpful for that woman to be able to do that, to get enough of a take on that part of herself that when she would become anxious, when she would become driven, she could say, oh, that's my mother part. Separate from it and, and go on. Does that? So it, it was, it, it was a, way, it's a way for patients, after they have developed an observing ego, to begin to identify parts that take over, parts of complexes that take over, and to work that without getting caught in it. Okay. Could you deploy a
3: with ego because you mm-hmm. use um, that a lot
1: of times? It is the part of a person that can say, um, right now, um, my chest is tight. Um, yeah, I understand the capacity okay. of the dreams
3: of but how does it relate to the self and to the ego
1: that you know Okay. It, it's, it's consciousness. If you're not conscious of the self, you're not, in a sense, you're not, you're not related to it. If you're not conscious of, um, I don't want to define complex yet. Um, so let me think. The particular patient that I'm talking about probably had a rudimentary observing ego, but when she would become anxious, she would snort cocaine, or when she would become anxious, she would drink to numb herself off, or to, or, or to, to make her experience. Ecstatic in other ways because cocaine was a was a a high for her. Um, That was a wiping out of an observing ego. It was a dampening down of her observing ego. Okay. I don't know how to define it other than to say it is the capacity of a person to have memory, to have affectivity, to be assertive, and to and to and to hold and contain their experience and to talk about it. Okay. Okay. Yeah.
3: I think it's an important. It is, and it's going to have to be fleshed out. Yeah, it's going to. It seems to me that there are lots of parts of the personality that are able to observe. Yes. They don't all observe without judgment. That's right. They don't all observe. I mean, um, it seems like the observing ego, in order to be effective, has to have some of the qualities of the self. You know, it has to have no. the ability to observe without judgment, and
1: you no. no. Um, I don't think I've ever had a patient who could observe themselves without, without a judgment. I, I would say a quicker, a quicker way to talk about it would be to say that it is the capacity of, of, a, of a person to be able to, to observe when they're in complex and to step out of it. And since I, I haven't defined complex yet, I, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. But it is that capacity to be able to say, wait, I'm in complex. I'm in the there and then instead of the here and now. What am I feeling? What is it like? And how can I get out of this state? Okay. Yes. Well,
3: it seems like uh, children will be traumatized often going to a different state of consciousness. Yes. Yeah. So they, they go into what we have a trance state, and so they wouldn't have the number. It's their defense. Yes. They tune out and on around wellness. That's right. That.
1: That's right. This dissociation, they dissociate sometimes fragments. But let me, that is important. You're right. And let me come back to it when I talk about complex, because I think it'll fit more easily for you then.
2: Okay. All right. So um, can I just ask, the dynamic ego is that part that's been interjected uh, by the, the person? Is that
1: okay? The dynamic. The dynamic part of the ego is like the man in the story, who went, who on, Okay, and the longing pulled him into development. And that pulled, that was like, that was the dynamic, that's the dynamic part of the ego. There's, he, he longed for something. He knew he was missing something. Okay? And the static part would be these, the memory, the assertiveness, the affectivity, and the cohesiveness. Okay, now, if you think about human experience, Okay, as being as being divided. Okay, so when we see a, oh, on, when we see a patient, okay, or our own experience, we have kind of four basic areas of experience. We have emotions, we have mental experience, we have we do behaviors. And we have some a concept that, that Jung developed in 1946. Um, that is, it's a word called cycloid. And what cycloid is, is like when, when we talk about archetype, it's a, it's a bio-psycho concept. Cycloid is body and image. Okay, so we have the capacity to have an awareness or, of our body or our body works. And we have the capacity to dream and fantasize and have images. Now let me balance these and, and, and it may help you understand, Go that and understand ego. Emotions give us energy. Mentally, we receive energy. Our behavior, we define the movement of energy. And the psychoid aspect of human experience holds energy.
3: On the continuum, this goes back to what you were saying before where would that ability to? Observe the complex and step out of it you know, in terms of the treatment.
1: Okay. The ability to observe and step out of the complex.
3: Okay? It doesn't have to do with that. It has to do with that long line drill. Through the floor. Okay, on with the, the patient?
1: Yeah. Down here. Okay, where she was dissociating here? Right.
3: And then where would it be when she sees the complex and steps out of it on the continuum? Okay, it would
1: happen... In in terms of a process, okay. This woman would would say, "Um, when I get anxious, I start to my hands start to shake. That's a behavior. Um, I know when my hands start to shake or my legs have this funny feeling that I'm in complex. I need to sit down. I need to do some deep breathing and settle myself down because I'm in complex and I need to just slow down. Or she might say, "Um, I'm I'm thinking about uh, how angry I am at so and so. And I'm feeling really scared. I know when I think about getting revenge on somebody and I feel scared about that, I'm in complex. Okay? Now, the shaking is a behavior, but the physical sensation that this woman had in the legs um, and in the heart area was in the body. So when I have these sensations in my body, I'm in complex. Okay? Now, all four of those areas, um, I mean, you can identify one and say, oh, I'm in complex. That's a feeling tone. Um, I, I, I haven't got to complex like that, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm leaving. But, but it's, it's like the observing ego walks all four of these areas and can access one or all, okay, to learn. Now, if you look at, at, at what, what Stern says are the inherent capacities of the ego, and you look at this diagram, which comes from um, a Native American tradition, okay, um, you'll see that they, that they fit. Um, memory and mental assertiveness, the behavior, affectivity and emotions, cohesiveness, and the psychoid realm, because we do have an experience of being held together, sometimes by, by body. Um, the ego locks into this basic human structure, and, and I, I think, at least as best I know, from, from what I've studied, all of the ways that we psychologically treat people can fall into these four areas. Mm-hmm. okay we can talk about complex <laughs> all right um, any more questions about self archetype and, and ego good okay. no. <laughs> all right wait so I had a question okay last um, hard- end about the
3: when you talked about the access between the ego and self by um, the individuation. yes and Seems that unless I mean, you have very strong access, uh, very strong access, you are not going to have the information. And you see the sudden growth in narcissistic personality. So, so when I look at that, there is something missing to me because what's missing is what will provide the transformation in the personality. What will provide the transformation in the in the, in the emotion? Where the growth comes from? That's what I don't see when I look at that. Okay.
1: It's not there. <laughs> you're not seeing it because it's not there. It's not there yet. I, I hope to get to it. I may not be able to get to it tonight. Um, it is there, but you're right. It's not in that picture. Okay, so can I, can I, it will come. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, complex. Jung discovered that human experience is laid down in patterns, um, and those patterns he called complexes. Um, he thought of complexes as patterns of feeling tones, okay. feeling tones. ideas, images, physical sensations, and behaviors wrapped around an archetypal core. This concept is very important in viewing victims of post-traumatic stress disorder because it, it literally helps the patient collaborate in, in their own recovery. Um, The patient begins through the process of discussion with the analyst to reflect upon their emotions, ideas and thoughts, physical sensations, passive fantasies, and their behaviors, and some awarenesses um, about those aspects of themselves that are overly developed and those that are not developed or deleted. Let me give you an example, because I do better with telling stories than I do with theory. Um, I had a friend um, uh, when I was in nurse's training, and we were walking down the street to buy some old-fashioned peanut butter, <clears throat> and um, a car backfired, and he grabbed my hand, and tight, and I, I was frightened because I, I didn't know what was happening, um, and, and this guy was white as a sheet, he had beads of sweat on his lip, um, he, he was shaking a little bit, and he had a hold of my hand, and he started deep breathing, and I, I mean, I stood and, wait, and waited with him. I, I didn't know what else to do, but I was really scared. And after a few minutes, he said to me, um, he said, I, um, I have post-traumatic stress disorder. I was in the front lines in World War II, and I watched my friends being blown up and landing on me. And when I hear a car backfire, I go back there. And he said, I learned, I was deprogrammed, you know, when I got home from the war, and I have learned, you know, how to, how to alter my, my body and literally de-breathe. But when I hear a car backfire, my first response is to be back there, and my body wants to dive under the nearest car so I'm, I, I can protect myself. Now, that was my, my first exposure to the idea of complex. But that's a complex. That's how it works. That's how quick it works. A trigger happens, and the person is back in the there and then, in that kind of reality. And that is, at least from from my experience, the reality of the people that I've worked with who are victims of post-traumatic stress disorder. Someone over here talked about a patient. I think it was you being wordless. Okay, I I, I would guess. I don't know, but I would guess that that wordlessness may be because. Part of them is back in an, in a different kind of an experience, and they're unable to talk about it. So, so that's a complex. Um, okay, I talked. I, I gave an example of of the patient. Um, let me think of another example. Um,
2: Would, would the imagery of how elephants are conditioned be a complexion of how an elephant, they first, when they, they grow up, they first put a chain on it, yeah. and then they take the chain off a week later, and pretty soon they can just tie a little string to the elephant, and the elephant will never go beyond pulling that string, because they'll think... It's the chain? It's
1: the chain. Yeah. Um, th- that I don't know. Um, um, what what I have um, what I have seen um, in, in my own work um, is people either describing um, as they talk in their everyday life literally going back into complex or observing in in sessions um, I mean it, it happens so many times during the week i don't I don't even think I could count it where where um, something that I say is um, misperceived, um, linked to something that's very judgmental or critical of the person. Y'all have had that experience. Um, you know, we call it we call it transference. Um, but on one level, those kind of distortions and deletions and generalizations have to do with. Um, damage or wounding that that has that has or the experience of that taking over and literally overriding the present reality that the complex overrides the, the reality so when you say how important the observing ego is yes it is because the work is is to learn when the reality the present-day reality is being overridden and how to how to learn how to step out of that yes.
3: Who has the dissociation? I don't know if you're for that first complex or not, um, but um, I'm finding that even though you can't, the person may not be able to integrate the dissociation, they can learn how this dissociation functions. And they can learn the triggers as to what they will get caught up in with another person if they thoroughly understand the dissociation, even though they have no control over it. Um,
1: Hey, give me, can you give me an example or give us an example?
3: Um, a woman who is drawn to abusive men. Now, um, she comes from a home where she has been physically abused. And her, her, the complex that you might that be you, you describing a complex where love is associated with violence. That's what she has experienced people who love her are violent towards her, so that when she when, when she meets somebody who has this subconscious core to them, there's an immediate rapport. And if she can sense this click that happens immediately, then she can learn that she is getting involved, once again, in this kind of a, a relationship and catch herself before it happened. Even though that dissociation
1: hasn't been integrated as yet. Okay, I don't understand what you mean by dissociation.
3: Well, I'm confused between my concept of dissociation and your concept of complex. I'm not sure if you're the same or the different. Okay,
1: I don't know. Can you help me with what you mean by dissociation? Um,
3: well, a dissociation is a kind of the personality that has of its own. it has also of its own. It has its it has its own agenda. And it's something that happened early in the childhood and the child's life that has not grown with the course of
1: time for society to raise the personality. Okay, I, I I would say that we're probably that my c- complex, what I'm talking about as being complex, is somewhat like what you're talking about being a dissociation when I think of of someone dissociating, um, I think of someone leaving their body. I think of someone leaving, um, losing their ability to think, losing their ability to feel, losing their ability to act in their own best interest, that they literally go away. So I, I, I would say that your concept of dissociation and my idea of complex would be closer together than, you know, than what I think of as being dissociation. I think it's just, it's like, th- that's the hard part of, of working with therapists who have been trained in different disciplines, because we have different words that mean the same thing, and then and then we've got to kind of um, try and figure out, you know, like in this case, I think we're on the same page, but the words are different. I
3: just want to ask you is, in your idea of a complex, would your complex have something in the person that they would click with? um or is this to
1: the person no because a person doesn't exist in, in a vacuum and so there would be a, always be a stimulus from the environment that would activate the complex just like the car backfiring um, got my friend activated into complex and back in the front lines in World War II.
2: are you saying that if if something triggers the complex and someone's aware that something just triggered the dissociation or the conflict, that their awareness is the observing ego And, yeah. and, that, and that even though you can't, even
3: though you haven't integrated this part of you, right. can, you yeah. can to identify how it works and there's a protective measure like this mechanism that you're developing.
1: Yeah, so that in, in the case of, of that, that client, or many clients who, who have been raised in an abusive situation, who are attracted to people who repeat the abuse? What you're saying is that there's kind of a lock and key mechanism where the person says, "Wait a minute, I'm I'm into it again. This is what I need to do, not to get into it. This is how I need to take care of myself. This is what I need to to think about. But this is not okay for me to do." Okay. Same page, different words. You're calling it
2: observing ego. Yes.
1: Yes. Um. The ego is a complex. The four aspects of ego consciousness are archetypal. Um, But the complex is that the ego accumulates individual life experience. It used to make me crazy when I would read Jung. And I mean, he's all over the place. He's got 75 different definitions of ego. You know, much, and sometimes he talks about the ego being an archetype and sometimes he talks about it being a complex. And it used to make me crazy when I would be studying or trying to write something, but it's both. It's archetypal because we all have the capacity to have memory, affectivity, assertiveness, and cohesiveness. But the ego is a complex because it gets filled out as we cycle through the developmental stages and we get our own kind of experience that are attracted um, to the ego. And the core of the ego and the circumference of the ego is the self. Now, let me, let me say something about that because um, that sounds so metaphysical. And what has that got to do if you work in a mental health system where you're, you, know, you have a patient come in who's, who's hurting and who's got, who's got post-traumatic stress disorder? um the self is always there and I think that the one the, the one thing that I have seen over and over again in my in my in my patients is the hope in them that I believe that they can get better and the only way that I can believe that they can get better is is, is to trust that there's something in them that knows how to knit them together um, because that's sometimes that's that's all I have and um, that's
2: a big piece. You bet. I mean, <laughs> you bet it is.
3: Please. do you really mean that the self is the center of the ego or the center of? It's the center?
1: It's the center and the circumference. So it, it's like you can think of it in, in, in two ways. If you, if you make a cone and you go to the bottom of the cone, the self is there. And if you if you make the cone go out, it's the circumference. It's a metaphysical concept. Um, the way that I would say that that um, that people experience it as the center is. What um,
3: is it? I mean, I hate to. It's okay. But I've never heard it called the center of the ego. Okay, it's. I mean, the, I've always heard the self being called the center of the sum total It is the person and the circumference. Okay. Uh, I mean, it includes much more than just the right. ego.
1: Okay. It it does, and what, what does I what I mean by that is that. In working in working clinical terms, it is the part. It is the part of a person. Um, let me give you an example. Um, a patient who um, worked for a long time had memories come up. Talked about the memories in a group. Wept. Had people weep with her. Checked out because after she wept and talked about the memories, she she had shame. It, it was like the part of the center of that, or the or the invisible part of that was the part of her that stepped out and trusted that there was something in her that knew what she was about. And so when I say the center of the ego, I don't mean to collapse it into, in, into something less than the ego. What I mean is that, that it is an experience that people have, that there's something in themselves that's trustworthy, that knows what they need. Um, so it's an ex- I'm, I'm talking about an experiential definition rather than a cognitive one. It's that woman, when she finished her work, stood up and she said, this is the first time I have ever known, okay, going through this. I felt like the ground holds me up. I felt like I'm, I'm here and I can trust myself. I can trust that I take in, that people care about me, even though my father did terrible things to me, that I'm not bad. Um, it's... It's an experiential center, not a not a cognitive one. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, that's why
3: I don't understand why it would be the center
1: of the ego. But okay, it's it's probably not a, a well thought out version. I, I'm I think I'm more talking about an experience of being centered, of being trusting something within oneself. And I guess that wouldn't be the center of the ego. It would just be a sense of centeredness. Okay.
2: Yeah. So in your story. About the man who goes through the initiatory process. Yes. Then it's the part that he doesn't know what is coming for his initiation into who he is. Well, he didn't, he
1: didn't say, he didn't say, um, I don't get this. Nothing's happening. Who gives it? You know, who gives it on me? I don't care. I give up. He didn't say that. He, he trusted right. that something was really happening. He trusted that, that something would be revealed to him. Um, it's you know, that that I'm talking about. The, Give me a better definition for the, it than Sutter that, that you go.
3: Found on the image of the hummingbird is that it moves so fast but it stays in the same place. Okay. And he was able to stay in the place while the movement was taking place in him. In order to go to the next step, he you know, that okay. image of stasis and dynamism at the same time is a hummingbird to me.
1: Okay, I think you're right though, I think that that's not a good way to say it. I don't, but I don't know how to Can say it.
3: Can you help me out? Yeah, you talk about it. You know, yeah, Laura Stein, one of talked about the ego is being a privileged complex, and Edger just expands on the whole concept of ego self-access. And each needs the other for the consumption. The I mean, ego needs to live out the demands of the self. Mm-hmm. So that's, that helps give a
1: You can think of the ego as being the center of consciousness in the unconscious. Or you can think of it being the sum total of the personality. Experientially, you can think of it as being that part inwardly of a person that they somehow trust to take the next step.
2: That would be the, for me, that would be the transcendent function. Mm. That's... um,
1: Yes and no. I'd
2: have to. I'd have to. Okay.
1: That. And you want to say more?
2: Well, well, for me, that's the place of doubting what's going to happen, and what's going to happen is I, I can't know about it. If I did know about it, I wouldn't be there. And so, I would have to let go of that and trust that that would be there for me. And it would be going into a void or a darkness. Uh, it'd be going into a place of unknowing, and letting go and trusting that that function would be there for me. That would that would okay. be for me. Okay. So it like would be a transcendence because I would I, I wouldn't be the, my ego would not be in control. There would have to be something else in control of that process.
1: So e- the ego would be reaching towards something or trying to dialogue with something.
2: The ego would have no control over that. Okay. It would have to trust that process. Yeah, but there's the other aspect where
3: it's like the ingredients. It's like brushing your teeth. It's like the next thing next. Is exactly.
2: <laughs> that okay. Yeah, okay? but I don't know what that would
3: be. Yeah, except for <laughs> there, I have this feeling that there's this connection that you know that there will be something there. I mean, that it isn't the great unknown, it's like the nitty-gritty that you
1: do know. I think it's both at the same time. Okay, as I remember, um, the, the transcendent function is something like the, the dialogue the dialogue between the ego and the self. And so the nitty-gritty is a part of that, and the letting go is, is a part of that. Um, and I I, I would like us all to think about um, what a way to talk about when um, when the when the patient or how the patient goes inside to say I, I'm going to come to the next session. I'm going to talk about the next memory. I'm going to let that come up. If it's if it's not a centeredness, what is it? Because I think it's, it's an incredibly necessary part of the work. It's the part of the patient that that commits. That's willing to commit to the work, or that's willing to trust that they'll get something back from it. And you know, I don't know um, how to how to call it. Yeah. Let me summarize um, kind of what I have uh, said tonight. Um, again, this is sort of a nitty-gritty um, diagram, um, but it's kind of getting us ready for next week. Okay, here's a bat of energy. And there's spigots um, of different shapes. Okay. Um, let's say that the bat is filled with energy, and that the the, the, the the differing shapes are archetypes that at different times release the energy. That's that's always been a, a, a simpler way. For me to think about archetypes, um, if you think about generalized human experience, being here and needing to be poured out, then it comes out in different ways. Um, I I think of the of the um, someone said. How does the ego move? There's no movement in that diagram that that you showed. Um, There isn't any movement in the diagram that I showed. Um, This is kind of a take on what creates the movement. And it's a trying to get behind what happens in post-traumatic stress disorder. So very basically, let's say that we've got human experience with a mental, a psychoid, an emotional, and a behavioral aspect. And we have an ego, with a memory, with an affectivity, with a cohesiveness, and with an assertiveness. And we have instincts that come from outside this. And impact the ego, and before they do, they have to be dampened down into something that's understandable. That dampening down process I'm going to talk about next week, but I wanted to start it tonight. That that dampening down process creates a, an archetype that can be way to begin the human structure. Okay. If we go back, if if I don't say anything more about that, because. And I go back to the, to the story of the old Indian man that I talked about in the beginning. Let's say that his ego had longing. And that was, that what was coming at him was an instinct of creativity that was incredibly un, undeveloped. And that these two, over a period of time, because of a hummingbird, began to have a relationship and, until he developed his creativity. If you think about that process with someone who's a victim of post-traumatic stress disorder being interrupted and being interrupted by a complex or a series of complexes where um, the mental, the emotional, the behavioral, or the psychoid components of generalized human experience or memory, assertiveness, affectivity, and cohesiveness is, inter- is interfered with. And a complex develops that distorts this relationship. So that that the that the ego longing um, and the relationship with whatever with, with the instinct, um, in this old man's case, creativity, is distorted, generalized, or deleted. Um, so that the woman um, that I've been um, that I've been talking about um, does not have a, a spiritual life, um, has developed a profession over the time that, that she's been working with me and and can work, but when um, when memories began to come up. Was so unable to was so unable to function, and her experience was so distorted. Um, she hallucinated, and medication was about the only thing that could help her maintain her cohesiveness. Gradually, over time, as her observing ego has 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 developed, and she begins to step outside the complex, she's beginning um, to learn. Um, that at the very base of her sexuality and her sexual identity is something that is that is so wounded and so distorted for her that she still is not able to have children and does not know if, if she'll ever be able to do that. She is not able, I think at this time, and... and um, to have um, a sexual encounter with still without having flashbacks, even with, with medication and after about a four and a half years of work, including group. So that that basically the concept of the self is linked with the capacity for someone to have a relationship with something deep within them where they can grow and become who they are. Post-traumatic stress disorder distorts generalizes or deletes the capacity to have that relationship and somehow distorts it through one of the inst- instinctive capacities for development. Those are being, uh, I'll talk about them next week, but being, doing, thinking, ident- sexual identity and creativity. I, I think of them as being five. But the complexes that are developed distort that relationship and that instead of, of having um, a relationship with the self, that that relationship is surrounded by shame, and they develop some kind of a, of a false adaptation um, or partial adaptation to, to reality, and the process of individuation is blocked or thwarted, um, and the experience of the self is often um, linked with with being victimized. Um, and sometimes the victim will identify with, with the perpetrator, and so the experience of the self becomes an experience of re-inflicting the wounding on someone else. Now ask me questions. We've got about five minutes. I covered too much, too fast. Yes? I, I think there's a possibility to cut too
3: long, but it's, um, it's been a fun work. You were talking about what is the self. Um, it seems to me that anyone who's had mystical experience has come in contact with that part of them, very much so, and that that's only one type of coming in contact with that part of you. If you have a small child, of, of one a one, two, or three-year-old child, you see the self right there. It's, it's just, it's just an irresistible interaction that you have with that child, versus the person who can't appreciate seeing that self in the child. Uh, um, what I'm saying is the woman who was in your group, who stood up and she said that she had that self. I'm suggesting that there's a possibility that there is this non-verbal interaction between you and the group members where you have come in contact with that part of you and you are making it possible for her to come in contact with that part of herself, irrespective of all these other things that you're doing. And I guess what I'm looking for is a way to build on that part, to make it expand within the person, to give them the strength to go through all that you are trying to make them face. Um,
1: I think that that has to come from inside of them. Um, I think that, that the people who stay and who work have something inside of them that they trust. I don't know what to call that, but I don't, I don't think that the therapist does the work. I think that there is a great deal to be said for the interactional field between the analyst and the patient. And I I will say more about that because I think it's terribly, terribly important. But I think that that push come to shove, that the patient has to somehow deep within themselves make a commitment to the work and do the work. The analyst can present, the analyst can be there, the field can be there, but if if the patient is not willing to work, the work won't be done.
3: I'm saying is that I think there's a possibility that you can help that person connect with that part of them by you being connected to that part yourself. I think
1: that's right, mm-hmm. I, and I think that's very, very Jungian um, and, and very wonderful. And and um, when I say that I think that that's what makes a Jungian analysis different. I, I think it's that. I mean, I think what you're talking about is is something I said earlier that there's times uh, when I pray, and I'm sure all of us who work. With patience, Pray, because what can you say? I mean, what can you say when someone comes in and says, I remember being kidnapped when she was how old? Okay, for how many hours and with some kind of a terrifying man? What What do you do but listen and, and pray? Um, and, and you're right, does the patient pick up on that? I think so. Isn't
3: that what you was talking about with the zipper stone and alchemy? Yes. Thanks.
1: and he said um, basically he said that um, that the, um, the patient, the analyst, the unconscious of the analyst, and the unconscious of the patient, so that you've got you've got all of this going on at the same time. And that's kind of an aside. But I think that that diagram expresses what you were saying. Are there any other questions? We covered self, ego, archetype, and complex. That's a tremendous amount of material for one night. Um, Too much to assimilate.
0: This podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, Mm www.jungchicago.org.